We're going to a sermon right now, uh, which is kind of hard to follow that act, but here we go. I think you're going to like it. If you remember, we're in a series of messages about three things, because the word of the year is church. Okay. Well, what is church supposed to be like? Well, why don't we use a biblical grid, a biblical measuring tool? The Apostle Paul, whenever he wrote letters to different churches, it's interesting, extremely interesting. I remember when Dr. Gene Getz first showed this to me, a biblical scholar, how at the beginning of almost all his letters, Paul always mentions three words, faith, hope, and love. And he uses these like measuring tools. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1 for an example. Verses 3 through 5, he mentions it right away in this letter, but he says the same thing in Ephesians, says the same thing in, in Philippians, same thing in especially Thessalonica. He mentions different things. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith, he's not just throwing that out there, some kind of religious talk. He says, well, what we're thanking God for is you guys seem to have faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. You seem to be loving people. God's worked in your life, giving you a loving heart because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. They're holding on to hope. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. It's an interesting pattern to know Paul starts his his um letters to these churches, always evaluating them. In fact, when he gets to Thessalonica, because they had some strange teaching about end times, he thanks God for their faith, thanks God for their love, never says a word about hope. Ooh, because in the following chapters, he's going to say, guys, you got kind of messed up. You're getting kind of cultish. You don't understand the truth about the end times. Or when he gets to Corinth, we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians 13 today. In Corinth, he's talking to them, and he never mentions a thing about faith or hope or love at the beginning of the letter, and you're going, what? He's doing it all different. But instead, he thanks God for his grace. If I was dealing with the church of people, and they were kind of messed up in their faith, not very hopeful, but rather negative, and they didn't love one another, that's what I would do too. Just thank God for his grace, <laughs> right? Because you're such a mess. So this pattern becomes extremely important for us to notice. And if you're going to evaluate this church, I sure hope you use the biblical model instead of like, well, I like the music, or I don't like the music, the building is this or that, or I don't. What's that about? Paul didn't give a rip. Paul always measured a church by its size. Not the size of its building, not the size of its number of people, the size of its faith, the size of its hope, and the size of its love. That is what makes a great church a great church. Do the people demonstrate faith? Do they trust God, like for a senior pastor? Do they have hope in what God's going to do for the future? Do they believe they should love one another and actually act upon it? Well, in our series, we've been going through faith, we've been going through hope, now we're at the love series. And today we're asking the question, what is love like? And before we even get there, what I'd like to do is pray that God would help you understand this major, major theme in the Bible, love, and what it means for you personally. So bow your head, let's pray. Lord, we come to you very humbly, recognizing we need to understand love. Often it's our ignorance that gets us in so much trouble. Often it's our lack of understanding that gets us all depressed. Often it's, it's, it's the way we've misused and misunderstood love that has had a deep grip on us and caused us to make really bad decisions. So Lord, in humility, I join with my brothers and sisters here and I ask you to please teach us now 
about love and what it looks like, what it feels like, how we can get it into our life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And we're going to ask the question, what is love like? I want to start by reading an article about love. Listen to this. What is love like? Well, love's an overpowering force in one's life. It's beyond logical power, more powerful than emotional feelings. It's a hunger, a drive, an appetite that is never content by itself. Love requires companionship. True love leads to sacrifice and grows stronger by, by surrender. Why is love so desired? Do you ever ask that question? Why do we want love so bad? Why is love so unstoppable? Why is love so sought after even to the point of death? Because love comes from God, 1 John 4, 7 says. In fact, God is love, 1 John 4, 8 says. Being created in God's image means that you and me are hardwired for love. That's why we hunger for it. It comes from God. Let me put it this way. What was the mission of Jesus? What is the promise of the blood, bloody cross and the empty tomb? What is God's ultimate goal in becoming the ultimate glorified being and reigning over all the universe? What, is, what in the world is God willing to sacrifice so much for and work so long to accomplish? What is the objective of God's creation plan? What's the re- objective of God's redemptive plan? Well, John 3.16 says it's because for God... So love the world. Really, it all comes from his love. God's ultimate goal is to love. Love reflects God's ultimate glory. His love reveals his ultimate power, his ultimate truth, his grace, his patience, his kindness, his loving kindness, and on and on and on, his willingness to suffer through all kinds of temper. God loves you and loves to absorb you into his great love. Nothing has, nothing does, and nothing will stop God's love. Human beings, all human beings on the planet of earth who have ever lived on the planet earth have only two choices. Either you accept God's love or you reject God and his love. Each choice involves the entire framework of your life and results in your entire eternal destiny with God and his love or away from God and his love. Wow. That's why love is so important. That's why we all hunger and thirst for it. Now, as good as that statement is, it falls far short of 1 Corinthians 13. To me, 1 Corinthians 13 is the greatest script ever written about love in all of human literature. Nothing tops it. It's absolutely divine. It's unbelievably miraculous, as you will see as we study it. And when When the Apostle Paul wrote it to this church that was so lacking in love, he said these words. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. At that church, they made much out of their ability to speak other languages. They made much out of their ability to be eloquent and even angelic or powerful. They were looking for the the, the manifestations, the power. 
And he says, well, even if I do all that, I'm just a noisy nothing if I don't have love. That's it. You heard it right. A noisy nothing. What does a noisy nothing, what does a clanging symbol mean? He means you can have all this ability, all these gifts, but if you don't have love, your life is meaningless. It's stupid. Have you ever come to that place in your life where you look at everything and you kind of go, it's not doing it. I don't feel it. I'm unfulfilled. Why? You don't have love. We're made for love. It's, we're hardwired for love. He goes on to say this. And if I have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I'm that powerful, I can move a mountain by the faith I have in God, but have not love, well, I'm nothing, even if I can do that. If I give all I have, and if I, I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Wow. All you've got, all you've done, all you're going to do, all you give can actually be nothing. Okay, okay, let's stop a minute now and re- just think with me a minute. If God is love, like we read in 1 John, and he created you and me to love us, then how come it's so hard for me to get love? What? Really? Have you ever been frustrated? It's like, where is it? I'm not having it. I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. I thought you sent Jesus for me. What's the problem here? Here's the problem. It's been the problem since the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve picked from the forbidden tree. Sin, the Bible calls it, came into the human race. It infiltrated into every personality, into every contract, into every situation, into every person. It's there. It's in your feelings. It's in your head. It's in your motives. It's in your attitudes. Sin corrupts. Sin kills. Sin deceives us all about love. Its goal is to rob us of love. And it uses different things in our life, like our pride, like our selfishness, like our worldliness, like hatred, like anger, like sexual sins, like abuse, like lying, and on and on, as you know, the list goes. Because sin's objective is to rob us of what God wants. And what does God want? Love. God is love. He wants to absorb you in his love. But sin. So, that's why we call the good news, the gospel, the good news. Because there's an answer to that problem. For God so loved the world, God in his love looked down on the planet earth and saw the lack of love and thought, I created these people to love, so I'm going to send my own son to be a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for their sin so they can be reconciled to me. They can be redeemed out of sin into love. And then I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit to help me actually do it. And they can accomplish it. They can be loving far beyond. And then someday they'll be in glory with me in a perfect loving environment, which no person's ever, ever been in or ever been close to, but we all long for. Because God put it in us. The love of God's been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it tells us in Romans 5.5. 5. So you could clearly see the loving God does what? Commits himself. See, love commits. I put that down in what's called the big idea of the sermon. Love commits. Don't forget that. Love commits. That's what love does. I'm going to explain that in a minute. In fact, instead of me explaining it, let's let Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, explain it. You ready? Point one. I'm going to show you three things out of the rest of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. 
Here's the first one. Love is a commitment between, excuse me, love is a commitment beyond yourself. Look at the rest of what he says here. In his definition, when asked the question, what is love? Here's a great definition. Starting with verse 4 through verse 7, it reads like this. Love is patient. He's trying to describe to these people that seem to be so far from love in their church. Well, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or, or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Now, that was only a few verses. What is it, four verses there? Did, did, do you do this? You know, this is written as an evaluation. This is written as, as something you're supposed to measure yourself with. And I don't know about you, but I read that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I kinda, it's kind of like this huge mountain. And I look at it and go, uh, no way. I, I, I'll never make it. Is that how it reads to you? When he says, well, love's always patient. It's always kind. It doesn't boast. It's not, it's not rude. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Rejoices not in wrong things, but only in right things. What? It's just too high a mountain. And often, many of us quit before we even start climbing. We're like, well, there's no way. I mean, it's nice literature. <laughs> kind of cute. Let's read it at the wedding. But I'm not going to do it. Nobody can do that right? We quit before we even start. It's too perfect. It's too good. I can't make it. That's often how we view this passage of Scripture, isn't it? It's just an impossible ideal. Nothing no one can really do. I remember one time, maybe this would help you, it would help me. I was talking with a scholar. He's actually uh, my wife's uncle, and the guy's a genius. And when he dove into something, he'd go all the way, and he decided he's going to do a study, a word, extensive, extensive word study of the word love in a multitude of languages, especially biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek, all kinds of different things. The guy was a scholar in languages. So he starts studying love in all these languages. And I'm talking to him one day at one of Lori's family's reunion, family reunions, and he hands me a stack of paper this thick because he seemed, he says, you seem to be so interested. I've written about this extensive study I've done. Whoa. Well, what does it mean? Can you like sum it up for me? He says, yeah. Here's the summary of what I came up with. In the English language, if you're trying to find a word that would be a synonym, a similar meaning, and maybe more intensive understanding of what love is, I would have to use the word commitment. Love is commitment. You can say what you want, do what you want, feel what you want, but if you're not committed, you're not loving. Simple. Love is commitment. It, it's the same thing. When you fully commit, you fully love. When you don't commit, you don't love. He says there's a lot of sloppy thinking about this, especially in American culture. Love is commitment. Don't say you love. Don't sing about love. Don't act like you love unless you really are willing to commit. If you're willing to commit, you love. If you're not, you don't. You don't love them. Why don't you be honest with yourself? 
Wow, that hit home for me. That's, that's, that's what I think Paul's trying to say here to the Corinthians. Love is patient, they're that committed. So committed, they're kind. So committed, they don't envy. So committed, they believe all things, bear all things, hope all things, endure. Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Love is severely committed all the way. That, that, that's so powerful. That's, um, that's why I say, as I try and think about this, love is like concrete. Let me try and explain something. Remember I said, in teaching about faith, hope, and love, I said, faith is like a stepladder. Do you remember that? And I had a ladder up here, a stepladder. They're bringing out my next one coming up here in a minute. But faith, you have the stabilizing side of a stepladder. I said, that's God's word. And I put a big sign on it. And then I said, the steps going up there, the stepladder, is what I call your will. And where your will leans into God's word, that's faith. Did you catch that? Don't be distracted away this. <laughs> when your will decides, I'm going to trust God's word, that if I believe in Jesus Christ, I know I, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to trust God's word when, it said, when I don't think I can, but he says, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When your word, your will leans up against God's word, you say, I'm depending upon that to hold me up. That's faith. Then I said, hope is like what? Oh, like a Anybody? Anchor, remember that? I want you to get this physical imagery because it really helps you bring it home. And I put an anchor around the cross. We had the cross over here and I put a big anchor around with a rope and I said, what's the key with an anchor? Holding on to the anchor. You anchor in the cross in the past and the second coming of Christ in the future and you're holding on to that for your hope. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, I even showed you a passage of scripture that says hope is like an anchor. That's where I get the biblical basis for it. You're holding on to it. Well, then I thought to myself, what's love like? If love is like commitment, what could be more committed than pouring concrete? <laughs> this is all concrete. The floor you're sitting on is all concrete. It's foundational in a building. Love is foundational in your life. And so love being like concrete helps us see that you need to be able to be that committed because that's what concrete reveals. And for example, they brought me some out here. So what do you have to do to make concrete? Well, first you take some cement. Let's pour it in this bucket here. So I'll pour some cement in the bucket. Let's get some more. Okay, we're going to patch a little place. So whenever you do that, you got to pour in a few rocks. So I pour in some rocks, and then you got to add a little water. So I add some water. Now I start stirring it up. Now, if you get it the right consistency, if you don't, you pour in too much water, well, then it's kind of sloppy. I see a lot of sloppy love around. <laughs> and are you know, you're not really committed. And cement, this con concrete that's not well made, can often crack and break. Um, it, it, it wasn't mixed right. It was too sloppy. I got a pretty good mix there right now. Maybe just a smidge more water. Okay. When you mix up some concrete and you're going to fix your sidewalk or you're going to pour something into a frame, what's the most important thing? This is all I want you to understand at point one here. Most important thing is you mix the concrete and you don't leave it in the bucket. You could mix the greatest mix of concrete. If you leave it in the bucket, it just hardens in the bucket, doesn't go anywhere, right? 
doesn't change anything. No, you're committed to who? You. So many people are so committed to mix their life up to fit them. That's not love. Concrete is mixed to be poured. Let me put it this way. Our culture tries to sell everybody a lie nowadays. It's just a big lie. I've been a pastor 40 years, and I've never seen this lie work, but they talk about it on TV like it works. They talk about it on psychology shows like it works. You know what their lie is? Love yourself. Just love yourself first, and then everything, you'll love everybody else. That's a stinking lie. I say that the authority of 40 years of working with people in troubled marriages. I've never, 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 never once seen that work in a marriage. Never. I've never seen it work in a conflict with a child. I've never seen it work with siblings fighting each other. I've never seen it work in a conflict in the church. No. What did Jesus say? You want to follow me? Just accept yourself? Take up the cross and follow me? No. You want to, you want to follow me? Step one, deny yourself. That's what he said. Just the opposite of what the world says. No, first deny yourself. First, get it out of your bucket. Cement, concrete is made to be poured. You pour it out toward the Lord. That's step one. Step one is give yourself to the Lord. Commit to the Lord. And the love flows from there. Now you feel secure about yourself. Now you love yourself because you see yourself in God's eyes. You don't just puff yourself up and say, well, I love myself. I accept myself. That's such a lie from the pit. It's the devil's trick. Don't, don't fall for it. Like I said, I've, I've never even seen it work, but I've seen it work tons of times when someone says, well, I'm committing to the Lord, and the Lord's going to give me love for my wife that I don't have. Lord's going to give me love for my husband. Lord's going to give me love for the kids or for that person in conflict. Love covers a multitude of sins, folks. I'm just quoting Bible verses to you. What are you going to depend on? Some stupid haywire philosophy that's made up by the devil himself, I think. Oh, love yourself first. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's like, you're strong enough to be loving? No, you're not. Nobody is. Love comes from God because God is love. So, step one. Love is created in you to be poured out. You know, back... Uh, oh, man, I'm running out of time. I gotta go fast. Years ago, back in the Jesus movement... I was running a coffee house on Sunday nights. I mean, uh, Friday nights. And we'd have hundreds of kids come out. I had a staff of 30 people. and We're ministering to kids, teaching kids, talking to kids, doing skits, doing fun things, singing songs, preaching, all kinds. It was like a little church. And kids were coming to Christ. It was, it was a Jesus moment. People were growing like crazy, but there was one kid that came. I won't tell you his name, but, boy, he was a problem. He was bigger than me, stronger than me, about my age. Um, he scared the girls because he was pretty harsh. He had a weird sense of humor. He was kind of tough. He had been known to hurt people, beat people. Um, so he's a little intimidating. And um, the Lord told me, I want you to befriend that guy. Oh, Lord, no, come on. No, befriend him. So I did. I figured what I needed to do was love him. And he had never seen much love. Unbelievably dysfunctional family he came out of. I could tell you stories. It was just horrible. No wonder he's mixed up. 
He was probably bipolar or depression. I don't know what was the diagnosis of him because he ended up in a life of crime and all kinds of messed up stuff, but I was befriending him. That means take him to lunch and have him say embarrassing things to the waitress and have other people look at you like, what are you hanging around with him for? Yeah, that's what I did. And I look back at it now, well, probably 46, 47 years ago, and I go, you know what the Lord was doing? He was preparing me. You know what the Lord was doing? He was teaching me. About what, Marty? Love. Love pours itself out. It doesn't really matter who won. Jesus even said, well, love your enemies. He's trying to say, get it out of your bucket. You're trying to protect your love, keep your love, have as much love as you can. It's all about you, isn't it? That'll never work. It's not what it's supposed to be. You're supposed to pour out even on an unloving person, even on a person that can't give it back. So if there's anything you and I need to learn right here at the very beginning is this. Love pours. God put love in your heart through Jesus Christ to pour it out. And that's what Paul's trying to say here to the Corinthians. He gives you this big definition saying, well, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How are you going to do that unless you pour it? That's a demonstration of patience, kindness, of believing, of hoping, of endurance. God started teaching me over 45 years ago. Second thing we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is love grows if you're willing to stay committed. Look at verse 8. Love never ends, or it says in another translation, love never fails. That, my friends, is a principle right here in the middle of this passage that you are to live by. So I, I use that principle to remind myself all the time about love. When I sign my letters at the bottom, maybe you've noticed, I put love never fails, Marty. Love never fails, Pastor Marty. I put that in there all the time. Because I want to remind the listener and I want to remind myself, it's love that is the goal. Now, I'm going to talk about that more later on in the series, but I'm just highlight that right now. Look what he goes on to say. He says, well, as for prophecy, prophecies, uh, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now, just stop right there before we go on to 10 and 11. He's saying there's some things that are partial, but there's some things that will never end. What's the one that will never end? Love. What's the thing that will never fail? Love. Okay, what are the things that are partial? Prophecy, tongues, knowledge even, all the knowledge, all going to end. He's trying to say there's some things worth investing your entire life in. Love. Some things, the rest of the things in the world, they're not worth it. They're partial. They're temporary. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. Don't waste your life. And so many of us waste so much time, so much energy, so much of our life investing in the wrong things. That's what the Corinthians were doing. So Paul's trying to say, guys, you're you're putting your emphasis in the wrong place. And then look at verses 10 and 11, because he clarifies this. But contrastive conjunctive, that's what it is in English language. The contrast to investing in the wrong things is this, but When the perfect comes, best translation for the word perfect here be mature, but when the mature comes and you grow up, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Oh, that's so good. When a baby is born, what does the baby do? The baby cries. Why? Because its tummy hurts and it wants food. 
And the baby cries again, but his tummy's full. Why? Because the, the, the baby wants its diapers changed. It hurts on their bottom, right? And all a baby wants is to be pain-free. All a child wants, complaining to mom, complain, uh, I want this, mom, give me that, mom. What's the child after? Pain-free life. Just avoid pain, pain avoidance. But when you grow up, you start to realize there's more important things than just being pain-free. What's more important? Love, he's saying. When you grow up, Corinthians, when you finally get mature and you're no, not mature, they were such immature people. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. All their anger and lying and sexual immorality and all this stuff, it's just, he says, you guys are acting stupid. You're acting immature. No wonder your life is such a mess. You gotta grow up. When you grow up, you realize there's something's more important than just avoiding pain. And I'm sure there's people right here, right now, I could look at your life and say, you know, you're just trying your best to make it comfortable, to make it easy, to have a comfortable little family, a comfortable little life. That's like your number one goal. It'll never work. The, the, the world calls it happiness. You'll never get there. It's not the right goal. You're shooting at the wrong target. You're investing in the wrong thing. That's what he's trying to tell the Corinthians here. Guys, raise your bar. Aim at love. That's where you're going to find your life is in love because God made you to love. He, he's, he's mixed you together in such a way that you're incomplete without pouring yourself to him and out for others. I think that's so beautiful. A child just avoids pain. But an adult decides there's something better. I mean, I, I, I don't have time to get into it. I will in the future. But sometimes true love eliminates pain in our life, right? Like the pain of loneliness because I found someone to love. The pain of comfort because I was so uncomfortable and someone now scratches my back or cares for me, gives me a kiss. That grand, right? But sometimes to truly love causes pain but you love anyway. That's what he's trying to tell these Corinthians. Grow up. Don't aim just at making your life better or easier. Aim at love. That's the only thing worth it in life. Don't waste your life on other things. In 1992, I was struck with the Epstein-Barr virus. I was very sick. Um, I didn't work here for nine months uh, my doctor, Prima Jacob, she, she diagnosed me with this, and she said to me, Marty, you know, we can run more tests, but they'll just prove that you have Epstein-Barr. I mean, we found it in this active state in your blood. You might have other things going on, but we know for sure you have Epstein-Barr. Okay, Prima, give me the shot. Give me the pill. What do I got to do? What's, what's the cure? Well, Marty, there is no cure. What? No, you got to rest. I've been resting for two months. I'm not better. It's not working. I'm still tired all the time. My foggy thinking has not gotten clear. I'm still having trouble getting energy. I get headaches all the time. You've put me on steroids and antibiotics. They don't work. What do I... I was so frustrated. I remember having this prayer meeting with the Lord, and I had just been reading this passage about love. And I'm so mad. I'm like, Lord, I was in the game, scoring good, and then you put me on the bench. What's the deal, coach? I don't understand. Aren't you on my side? Don't you want to help me? Have you ever had prayers like that with the Lord? It's called lamentation. You're lamenting before the Lord. You're complaining. Did you know that's okay to do? But if you hit hard, 
don't expect him to not hit back, because he did. And he says to me, Marty, nobody's stopping you from loving. Ooh. Nobody's stopping you from pouring out your little bucket. You're all so worried about your little bucket, and you won't pour it out. You can still love your wife. You can still love your kids. You can still love your church. You can still love. Even if you're in pain, even if you're tired, even if things aren't working, what's your number one goal? Yourself, your comfort, your, your pain-free life? Oh, you little boy, when are you going to grow up? Boy, did he hit me with that. And he was so right. I knew he was right. God was trying to chastise me and teach me what love was. And that if I'm going to make it grow, like I put down point two, I'm going to have to stay committed. Point three. We see in the rest of the passage, love commits to the end because it's worth it. That's what he goes on to say. Look what he says. For now we see in a mirror dimly. You see, what's interesting about that is Corinth was famous for the Corinthian bronze mirrors. They would take bronze and polish it up really good. You could look in the bronze and see your reflection. But being bronze as it is, it's dark, right? You get a dark reflection. Funny he should use that. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Notice the word but. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, why does he say that in the midst of talking about love? What could he possibly be meaning there? We know he's talking about maturing. He already said, mature, grow up. What does he mean? Don't you get it? He's saying now and then, now and then. There's a big difference between what you see now and what you're going to see then. You, you'll see everything then. You only see partial now. It's dimly, right? And so here you are in church. And he's saying, you Corinthians, you're all complaining about that girl over there and that man over there, and I can't believe this. And you, I don't like them now. And he's saying, guess what? Someday you're going to think they're great. Someday they're going to be perfect. So will you. Why don't you love them now like they're going to be then? Isn't that genius? That's just genius. Like I say, this passage is so powerful. Wow, I, I, I never thought of it that way. They really are my brother, my sister. They're really imperfect now. I really don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they talk. I don't like the way they're... I don't like anything about them. He's saying, so? Someday you're going to be wild about them. Oh, I guess. But what about now? Love them anyway. The only way they're going to learn, the only way they're going to understand, you love them. That's number one. That's what he's trying to say to the Corinthians. That's what he's trying to say to you. Could you make a decision, a commitment? I'm going to love them now like they're going to be then. Even though they're not there yet. And all of us are in process. Nobody's done yet. We're not finished products. But we're going to be someday. And he's trying to point that out. It's coming. Nobody's there yet. You're not so great yourself. Love anyway. Then he finishes with this verse. Look at it. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What does he mean? The greatest of these is love. 
he means this. He just talked about the now and the then. Someday, then, you won't need faith anymore, right? You'll be in heaven. Why would you need faith? <laughs> Your faith has become complete. Hope. Why would you need hope? Why would you need to hold on? Don't need to hold on anymore. You're already here. You already arrived. There's no rope to hold on to. There's no place to go. You're in heaven. You're as far as it goes. How about love? Well, guess what? Love will still be there. Love will still be needed. Love lasts forever. He's circling right around to what he said at the beginning. Love never fails. Love never ends. Isn't that beautiful? What a passage. What a passage. It's so powerful. It's all about your life and what you do and who you are. Okay, I'm, I'm far out of time, so let me end with this. Okay, I've been a pastor here for 40 years. And looking back now, I can see real clearly what the Lord's been doing. In 40 years, he's taught me, trained me, disciplined me, helped me, encouraged me, chastised me, rebuked me, hurt me, helped me, all in the same process of love. What I mean is, God has worked on and on and on me through good things and bad things, wonderful victories, horrible defeats, over 40 years. And it's so abundantly clear to me now it was all about love. He's trying to get my hands off of me and gripped onto my bucket and my life and leaving it sit in the bucket and getting me broke loose, busted loose, sometimes even hurt. And you go, why are you hurting me? And he's going, to break your grip loose from you so you can grip onto me and grip onto others. But you're so gripped on you if I could say anything to you at the end of my 40 years, it would be this. For heaven's sakes, don't waste your life on your commitment to you. It's what's destroying your life. Your commitment to you. And that's what God's been saying to me 40 years and busting me loose and sometimes I'm confused and hurt. You ever feel like that with the Lord? And he goes, I'm just trying to break you loose from your horrible life that you're wasting because you're so darn committed to you. I'm trying to help you get committed to me so I can pour my love through you and you can pour it all over on your spouse and your kids and your grandkids and the people in church and the world. That's what God's looking for from you. And sometimes he seems downright harsh, but he's not. He's being patient. He's being kind. He's being long-suffering. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things for you so you can pour his love out that he's put in your heart. Let me pray with you. Lord, I come before you and I'm just humbled that you would waste your time on me and on these people here. Lord, you, 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 you are so patient. You are so kind. And we are so far from actual love sometimes. We get so self-absorbed, so, so belly button focused. 
and you're trying to bust us loose. It's your mercy, oh God, it's your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. And now help us hear the word of the Lord through the book of Corinthians, through the love chapter, that all you're trying to do is help us enter into your love and experience it and your forgiveness and enter into your love flowing into our hearts like it says in Romans 5.5. 5 out to everybody around us. Oh, what a life. That's where I want to live, Lord. Thank you for helping us get there today. And it all starts with what? A commitment. Can you say this to the Lord? Can you pray, Lord, I'm recommitting myself to love, to loving you first, and then to love whoever you bring into my life. People I like, people I don't like, it's like that doesn't matter. You're going to love through me. That's what I want to experience, Lord. That's where the joy of the Lord comes. So, Lord, today, as a group of brothers and sisters, as a church, we're recommitting ourselves to love you and to love the world, even our enemies, even our spouse, even the one, our, 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 our brother, our sister, the people we're in arguments with. Love. Lord, put it there. I don't have it. Put it there. Help it grow as I get out of my bucket and flow in the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Stand up with me. I'm gonna let you go. Sorry I took so long. It's almost 1230. We had too much in the service. Thanks for being patient with me. You're loving and kind and all that stuff. Thank you. God bless you. Um,